And welcome once again to Bethany Community Church. It is a joy to be with you as we worship together online in many locations. Our prayer is that as we continue to gather in this fashion, God will meet the need for revelation from the scripture. So toward that end, please join me in prayer and then we'll begin. Father, we want to thank you that we have this moment now. And we pray not only for our world that you would intervene, certainly we ask, we're mindful of racial injustice and environmental crises and economic hardships and illness and threat of illness. But we pray not only for your intervention in the world, we pray that you would show each of us steps to take as ministers of hope right now. So toward that end, speak to us this morning in this world of complexity and uncertainty. May we be people of quiet confidence because of Christ. We pray in your name. Amen. One of my favorite quotes from uh, a favorite book series, Lord of the Rings, is this word spoken by Frodo followed by a response from Gandalf. Frodo, who is carrying the ring and life is getting dark and hard and there's mountain doom and enemies. This is what he says. I wish none of this had ever happened to us. You can identify. I certainly can. And then Gandalf says, so do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But it is not for us to decide. All we must decide is what to do with the time that's given to us. And Gandalf says that it kind of rolls off his tongue as if deciding what to do with the time given us is easy. And I'm just going to tell you, it's not easy. There are multiple uh, sets of crises that all of us face right now, and all of them are demanding our attention. This was true even before the coronavirus and economic shutdown and racial justice issues all rose to the surface at essentially the same time. In addition, forests are dying, the earth is warming, parents are dying, the streets of Seattle are increasingly uh, sleeping places for the homeless, and with that comes a host of issues related to drug addiction and abuse and mental illness and housing costs, and there's a healthcare crisis, and there's a political tension in the air, and friends are battling cancer. Some are winning, some are dying, some aren't sure how the story ends. And there's an election coming up, and there are fresh questions about the role of law enforcement in our culture. What thing do you focus on? With a limited time, this one wild and precious life, as Mary Oliver says that you have. And depending on where you live and what social circles you live in, there's sort of a group pressure to focus on a particular thing in a particular way by aligning with particular politics or organizational entities. And the implication at this moment sometimes is this. Listen, if your issue is not the issue in the moment, then you're viewed as antagonistic to those who are supporting the issue in the moment. And as I said earlier, uh, this can be paralyzing. So many ways to invest our lives. So much pressure to invest our lives in a certain way, to think a certain way, to act a certain way. This text shows us a way forward that releases us from anxiety. Now, let me give you the context. We're in Acts, of course, and uh, the disciples particularly Peter, have been involved in miraculous events on the courtyard of the temple, and then Peter's preached, and people are getting saved, and people are beginning to follow Jesus, and this movement that ultimately will be called Christianity is growing. And the temple authorities being threatened by this uh, arrest the disciples, and then the disciples are supernaturally delivered from jail, 
and uh, brought back again before the authorities who again forbid them from speaking. And this entire situation is remarkably instructive for us because it reveals three ways of being. Preservation of power, the simplicity of listening for Christ's voice, and the, and the, the power of patience. Three ways of being. Only one of those, though, empowers us to live with wisdom and peace today in the midst of not only multiple opportunities to invest our time and money, but pressure to invest our time and money in certain ways. And so we want to look at these three ways of being from the text because we live, all of us live in all three of them at various times. First of all, let's look at this way of being. Some people live in this way. I want to preserve my power and domination. And in this case, that's the temple authorities. One of the key phrases is in verse 17, the disciples' uh, new ministry is thriving. They're performing miracles. The church is growing. And it says in verse 17, the high priest rose up along with his associates and they were filled with jealousy. So I want to talk about jealousy because jealousy is at the core of a desire to preserve power and domination. Jealousy is different than coveting. Coveting is you look at someone and, and their, their lifestyle or their gifts, and you say, man, I wish I was like that. I think of Nathan, who we just uh, licensed here pastorally. Every time I listen to Nathan preach, his speech is so measured, his, uh, his grammar so perfect, uh, his thoughts so clearly articulated, that I go, I wish I were slow and measured and had perfect grammar and didn't stutter, and I covet the way he presents. That's something. But jealousy is different. Jealousy would be someone saying, look, I want what you have, and I don't want you to have it. That's jealousy. And that's this text. The temple authorities want the, the rising power and movement of the disciples and they also don't want the disciples to have it. And this is all through the Bible, but the best example of jealousy that's articulated biographically is Saul. Uh, and we read in 1 Samuel 18, uh, David is at this point a warrior. Saul is king. They've gone out of battle. They've been victorious. They're coming back. They won the war. Saul should be happy. But as people are singing in this victory parade, this is what people are singing. Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. And so in 1 Samuel 18, we read this in verse 8, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him, displeased him greatly. And he said, they've credited David with tens of, tens of thousands, but me with only thousands. What, what remains for him but the throne? So, so Saul is jealous of David. Not only would I rather have killed tens of thousands, I want to make sure he only kills thousands so that I maintain my power. That's jealousy. And then we read, Saul was afraid of David uh, because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. And if the Lord departed from Saul, inherent in that statement is that the Lord was with Saul. And the Lord was with Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, when Saul is anointed king, he's humble, he's obedient, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he begins to prophesy, he leads with clarity and courage. He, and literally, the text says he, he was changed into another person when the Spirit filled him. So he's a good guy. And then something happens. Watch this. 
Saul becomes successful. And that's, warning, that's dangerous time. Why? Here's why. Success has its perks. And that's exactly why it's dangerous. When obedience to God in your life brings a good job and financial security and enough prestige that you're the envy of others, the day may come when the most important thing in your consideration is no longer obedience to your calling, but preservation of your position and prestige. And if that happens, you're no longer living your life with open hands and obedience to God. Your primary paradigm now becomes, how can I preserve what I have? My reputation, my, my income, my, my, my uh, status quo, my market share. And it happens all through the Bible. And it happened to these temple authorities. Mark chapter one, uh, the, the, Jesus is successful and the temple authorities are threatened by Jesus' success. So they start challenging him doctrinally. John chapter 11, uh, the temple authorities are threatened again because Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And the temple authorities say, man, look how popular he is. If we don't do something, the temple's gonna be empty. And so they execute Jesus. After his resurrection, Matthew 26, the authorities are threatened again, so they bribe the guards who were guarding the tomb when Jesus was raised from the dead, and they tell the guards to lie and say that Jesus' body was stolen. That the, the authorities are threatened by this new movement. Why? Because the movement we're in has given us a very comfortable life, and we like it here. And our movement is threatened by this new movement, so we don't care if something undeniably miraculous is happening. What we care about is that it is going to affect our power and prestige, and that's not okay. And if you, one look at church history, you see this happens all the time. The church began with the purest of vision here, here, in, here in Acts, not without problems, but pure. And then by 325 AD, it becomes aligned with the state and falls prey to the, to the seductions of institutional power. Things that start out great grow, and when they grow, maintaining power becomes the vision. The early church becomes the Catholic church, becomes the Inquisitions, becomes the 30-year war, becomes the Protestant Reformation, becomes colonialism, becomes slavery, all in Jesus' name. So the church is corruptible. Therefore, Bethany is corruptible. You're corruptible. I'm corruptible. And I've been around Seattle and the United States long enough to know and see countless movements begin well, rise, become addicted to the power and prestige of a new position, and in that addiction, fall from grace and the power of God. It happens over and over again. It happens to churches. It happens to nonprofits. It happens to businesses. It happens to ideologies. It happens to movements. It happens to people. Many pastors so here's the question on the table. How do we avoid the corrupting influences of power and success? Both power and success we, success we already enjoy and power and success that seems available just around the corner. Like how do we avoid that seduction? And this text makes it clear that you're only free from these corrupting influences if these corrupting influences do not inform your decision-making. So then I have to ask the question, if the preservation of power will not inform my decision-making, well, what will inform my decision-making? And that brings me to the second way of being, which is a simplicity of single purpose. This is what I need, a simplicity of single purpose. Uh, the angel who supernaturally delivered 
these guys from harm's way, they were in jail. In verse 20, this, this messenger, he, like this angel opens the door of the jail and then says to the disciples, go back to the temple and speak again. Now they're in jail for speaking in the temple. Now the door's open and the angel says, hey, I've got good news. You're free to go. And I have other news. Go and speak again in the very place that you were put in prison for speaking. So the path that holds out the possibility of gaining power and avoiding suffering is not a consideration for these disciples because if it were, they would not have gone back into the temple and spoken. But indeed, they do go back into the temple and again are summoned by the temple authorities who say in verse 28 of chapter 5, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in his name and yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching And Peter said, we must obey God rather than you guys. The disciples are under pressure of very negative consequences if they choose to take a certain course of action. Should they choose to preach about Jesus and the resurrection in the temple, these authorities are making it clear in this text, they will pay a terrible price. And it's the threat of suffering, loss, public humiliation, perhaps even execution. And I'm just going to say to you, threat of suffering and loss and public humiliation are normally very persuasive disincentives for people because that's the world we live in. We live in a world of the carrot and the stick. And the the carrot is kind of the positive incentive and the the stick is the disincentive. If you do these things, we're going to punish you. In former communist Eastern Europe, you said the right things or you suffered the consequences. Like, for example, every local shop was handed a Workers of the World Unite sign. And if you didn't post that in your window, you could lose your business and go to jail. So it didn't matter whether you believed it or not, you posted it or you paid the price, disincentive. In the South, if you were black, you didn't go to the front of the bus or you paid the price, disincentive. In Seattle, it's the same thing. There's a group think happening. There's a pressure to think a certain way act a certain way, vote a certain way. And if you don't, there'll be a price to pay. That also is disincentive. Pressures usually come with a carrot and a stick. For example, in communism, for really good party members, there were promotions and power and prestige, better life. But even if there's no carrot, there's always a stick. Dachau, the gulag in Russia, unemployment, the cross. And so what's in play in this text is this. Don't talk about Jesus or else. And we know from verse 33 that the rulers wanted to kill these guys and death is a powerful stick. (laughs) So why do people employ threat as a tactic to keep power and keep people in check? Well, the reason is threats work. Ask any accountant who spent years at Dachau for speaking wrongly or a Russian literature professor who spent years in the gulag in the Soviet Union, or conservatives in the philosophy department of an Ivy League school, or pastors as they tried to decide what to say about Black Lives Matter, or police, or life in the womb, or the idols of individualism and, and, and uh, materialism and consumerism. It's wired in us to do kind of this cost-benefit analysis, this risk-reward thing. And so when we have to decide what to say, what to do, uh, we... This, is, this becomes our challenge. 
And, and this, this, this paradigm of cost-benefit analysis has always been with us. When Saul saw that he was losing power, in the story we heard previously regarding Saul and David, when he saw he was losing power, he disobeyed God in order to preserve his power because the power was more important to him than obedience. When Israel stood at the Jordan River and God said, it's time to go in and take the land that I'm going to give you, uh, they did a cost-benefit analysis and they said, yeah, it's good land, that's the benefit, but the cost is too much. The enemy is too powerful, and they did not go in. Uh, when pastors in Germany were faced with threat of loss, if they didn't fly the Reich flag in their buildings, they flew the Reich flag in their building. The vast majority of pastors, why? Better than Dachau, that's for sure. Listen, there's always a stick waiting for you. It's easy when you're at an ethical crossroads to say, you know what, I got a young family, I need this job. Or I have kids getting ready for college, I need this job. Or I'm not ready for retirement, I need this job. Whatever the circumstance, here's the point. It's always possible to come to a crossroads where kingdom of values may be costly and just instinctively do a cost-benefit analysis. And if the risk is too great, choose obedience to preservation of my status quo rather than obedience to the Holy Spirit. And here's the deal, friends. That way of thinking is always wrong, always. Don't don't ask, what will people think? Don't ask, what are the cool churches doing? Don't ask, what do the polls say? Don't ask, will this cost me my job? Don't ask, will this increase or decrease my market share? If you're living that way, not only, is it, not only is it wrong, it's incredibly anxiety-producing. There's a much simpler way. I'll just say, this is very real for we who are pastors. It's real for all of us right now, but I'll just share with you how, how this is real for we who are pastors. I think the stress of this, the past three weeks have, has been, I would say, higher than normal because my inbox gets emails hearing we've drifted too far to the left. We've drifted too far to the right. (laughs) We're too liberal. We're too conservative. We're too soft. We're too loud. By the way, when I began at Bethany 25 years ago, the pastor who preceded me, Pastor John McCullough, did for me then what I just did for Nathan now. And he pulled me aside, and I'll never forget, this is what he said, Richard. He says, I've always heard this. He was 38 years here as pastor. I won't be here that long. But he was, and he said, from the beginning, this is what I've heard. You're too Pentecostal, or you're too straight-laced. You're too liberal, and you're too conservative. You're too fast with change. You're too slow. He says, Richard, let it roll off you. Never worry, never ever worry about it. He says, in fact, if you're getting shot at from both sides, you're, you're exactly where God wants you to be. But it's not easy. And the result of this, getting shot at from both sides, has been a little bit for me less than ideal sleep for the last few weeks. And then I watched a movie earlier this week that I'll talk about at the end here. And after watching this very powerful movie, Uh, I woke up at one in the morning and I had had a dream of some sort. I don't even know what it was. But when I woke up, I felt this overwhelming sense of peace. All is well and all will be well and all manner of things will be well, as Juliet of Norwich said. 
And I didn't hear the voice of Jesus audibly, but I heard the voice of Jesus, if you know what I mean. And Jesus had a word for me at one in the morning this past week. I'm wide awake, and here's what Jesus said. Richard, just follow me. And then again, Richard, just follow me. Just follow me, moment by moment. And I'm now convinced that Peter's remarkable courage and wisdom in Acts chapter 5 is the result of him hearing exactly that word from Jesus back in John 21. John 21 is the articulation of the first resurrection appearance of Jesus with the disciples after his resurrection on the beach. The disciples had been uh, fishing, uh, caught nothing. Jesus redirects them. They catch some fish. They come to the shore. And Jesus is having breakfast with the disciples And he says three times to Peter, in a longer story, feed my sheep, just as we heard here with Phil with the the shepherd staff, feed my sheep, shepherd my flock, feed my lambs. And then he says, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, the day will come, my language, when you're going to go somewhere you don't want to go, and I'm going to ask you to do things you don't want to do. And then Peter is immediately like this, well, I'll go. If he'll go too, and he points to John. What's going to happen to John? (laughs) I mean, I'll do the hard thing if doing the hard thing is cool. If everybody's doing the hard thing, I'll do the hard thing. If everybody's saying the hard word, I'll say the hard word. If everybody's suffering, I'll suffer. If everyone who's protesting goes to jail, I'll protest and go to jail too. I just don't want to go alone. Sound familiar? (laughs) And then (laughs) Jesus looking at Peter. He says, listen, if I want him to go an entirely different path. That's my prerogative. And then the word that I heard at one in the morning, just follow me. Don't worry about the noise of what will people think, what will happen to me, my career, my prestige, my market share. Let it go, man, and just follow me. This will mean at times suffering, at other times miracles, loss, at other times popularity, freedom, at other times jail. New life, at other times, execution, follow. Because the only place worth being is in the center of God's will, and the only way to get there is step-by-step listening for the Holy Spirit and doing what the Holy Spirit asks you to do in that moment. Not the state, not the movement, not the particular uh, popular language of the day. Simply, what is Jesus asking? So... Peter's response then to these people was powerful. They don't have avoiding trials and loss as a criteria or consideration. Their paradigm is this, follow me. Sometimes that means you'll align with a pro-life movement. Sometimes as a pro-life person, you'll uh, challenge the gun culture. Sometimes you'll align with those fighting for racial justice who don't believe everything the same way you do. Sometimes you'll fight for clean uh, clean water in Flint, Michigan. Sometimes you'll help married couples move toward intimacy. Sometimes you'll uh, address the horrific conditions of immigrants at the border. Sometimes uh, you'll build houses with Habitat for Humanity. Sometimes you'll start a wilderness ministry. Sometimes you'll work with a a Duwamish tribe to build partnerships with, with natives whose land belongs to them. Sometimes you'll be popular. Some people will love you. Other people will hate you. That's okay. Just follow. This is why Bonhoeffer, when he wrote about ethics, said this, 
the figure of the crucified invalidates all thought which takes success as the standard. Success is never the point. Obedience is the point. So do, this is Bonhoeffer again, do and dare what is right, not swayed by the moment at all. Bravely take hold of the real, not dallying, not worrying about what might be. Don't withdraw into the ideas, but move out into action because action is freedom and obedience. God's command is enough to sustain you. Man, we need that word today. One pastor in Minnesota lost 1,000 people because he refused the pressure to align the church with a particular political party. There were, it was 5,000, and then within a few weeks it was four, and he offended both the liberals and the conservatives. More recently, a pastor in Alabama was fired because he taught what the Bible has to say about helping immigrants. I'll tell you what, as a leader, stories like that are actually liberating for me because I realize the one thing I must do, we must do, is listen for the Holy Spirit and follow. And that's what Peter does. Now, there's a third way of being. There's this preservation of power thing. There's this singularity of purpose thing. And there's a third way of being, and that's, it's called patient ripening in the text. We read here in verse 33, when the authorities who are preserving their power heard Peter say, whatever, we're going to do the right thing. It says, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. Verse 34, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel stopped them. And Gamaliel represents here patient ripening. Here's what you need to know about Gamaliel. First of all, he was a Pharisee, and most of these temple authorities were Sadducees. So it's like kind of different sectors of Judaism. And Gamaliel was actually the more conservative sector that took the law very seriously. And the other thing to know is he was, he was old. He'd seen movements come and go. And there were often kind of self-proclaimed messiahs. And so he names those. He says, listen, he, 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 first of all, he sends the disciples out of the room. And then he says to the council, take care what you propose to do with these men. And then, my paraphrase, remember Thudius? He claimed to be Messiah. About 400 guys joined up with him. Then he was killed, and they scattered. Remember the man named Judas of Galilee? He rose up, claimed to be Messiah. People followed him. He perished. Everybody scattered. So in this case, this is what I say. Leave these guys alone. Because if what they're doing is of their own doing... It's a movement, and hear me, every movement comes and goes. But if God is in it, it'll last forever, and you will not be able to overthrow it, and you will end up even being found fighting against God. So just wait, patient ripening. Don't endorse any movement too quickly. Don't condemn any movement too quickly. But wait, because if a movement is from God, it'll continue to grow. And inherent in this view is that nations rise and fall. Kingdoms rise and fall. Charismatic leaders come and go. Nonprofits rise and fall. Tea parties rise and fall. Liberal left rises and falls. Communist party rises and falls. Pol Pot rises and falls. Idi Amin rises and falls. 
Stuff happens. Don't panic. Gamaliel is saying this. Look, there's really only one stream of living water and we have to drink from that stream. And we may align with an organization's position on this or that issue, but our ultimate loyalty is not to an organization or a movement that will rise and fall. Ultimately, our organization is to a king and a kingdom that is not of this world. And I think one of the reasons that Bethany is 103 years old is that it's managed to fly above partisanship. And if we're going to be around for another 10 years, we need to keep focusing on the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ because that focus will thrust us into solidarity with those who are suffering from the effects of racism and police brutality and environmental degradation and infant suffering from untimely death in the womb and prisoners suffering from unjust incarceration and immigrants suffering from unjust treatment and many, many more issues, but no single issue defines God's kingdom because when Christ reigns, everything is healed. So every issue matters. So how do you know what issue you should involve yourself in? How do you know? Follow Jesus. That's how. In the early church, they'll wrestle with their relationship with the temple and with Gentiles and then with black Gentiles from Africa and then with men who are sexually outside the norm. And it'll go on and on wrestling with what does the kingdom of God have to say about this particular issue that will continue till June 28th, 2020 today. Remain focused on this question. What does Jesus want right now? That requires intimacy in your life with the Holy Spirit. It requires that. And that comes, as Peter says in Acts 5, the Holy Spirit is given to those who obey him. And so Peter's like this. I may be popular or unpopular. I may have a long life or a short life. I may be rich or poor. I may be free or in prison. But I know this, the Holy Spirit only comes to those who obey him. And it's my desire, says Peter, uh, I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> it's my desire to live in the stream of God's activity. And so my consideration when I'm at a crossroads is not what will make me popular. It's what does Jesus want in this moment? There in his freedom. I grew up in uh, Fresno. My dad ran track in college. And so every year in Fresno, there was a, an event called the West Coast Relays that gathered um, the fastest track athletes in the United States. From, they came from all over the country to this, this event in May every year in Fresno. My dad was a timer at this event. So I got to one of my earliest memories is the 1968 West Coast Relays and uh, the 4 by 100 from San Jose State, which set a world record. And then uh, the 200-meter the, the race. And in the 200-meter race, there were two guys, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who went on to run the 200 in the Olympics as well in 1968. And so they, they ran in the Olympics, and uh, uh, Tommy Smith placed first, and Carlos placed third. And placing second was a guy named Peter Norman, Australian, who really came out of nowhere and set an Australian record and won the silver medal. 68, race riots. Already, by the time of the Olympics, the assassination of MLK, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. And these guys plan out to make a statement on the podium when they go up to the medal ceremony. So Smith is up on the top with his gold medal. 
And then uh, in, the, in, the, in the back, having placed third and a little lower, is um, Carlos, both black men. And then here's this white guy, Peter Norman, placed second. He's got the silver medal on. And he has not only a silver medal on, but he has a button on. And on the button, it simply says this, uh, Olympic Project for Human Rights. And it's about race. So he's wearing a button in solidarity with these guys. And then these two guys, when the anthem starts, they put on black gloves, raise their fists, bow their head. It's Colin Kaepernick only 50 years earlier. Immediately, the IOC, Olympic Committee, decides uh, these guys have to go home. They tell the American coach. The coach says, no, they didn't do anything wrong. They were just following their conscience. The IOC says, if, they, if you don't send them home, we're stripping every American of all their medals. So they sent them home. The stick, right? Peter Norman, by virtue of his solidarity with these two, he went home and paid a price in Australia. He, he went on to qualify for the Olympic Games in 1972 in Munich, but the, he wasn't invited because of his action on the podium. A couple decades later, the year 2000 Summer Olympic Games in Sydney, Australia, his home country, he's not even invited to attend and participate as some sort of you know, honorary member. And the record that he set for the 200 meters was still standing in 2000 when he was not invited. Why? That single action caused him to get hit with a stick of censure. It was, very, it was very difficult for him. In fact, John Carlos says, Tommy Smith and I, we were getting beat up, but at least we had each other. Peter was facing the hatred of an entire country alone. Listen, why did he do that? Well, the movie I watched Friday night before I had the dream, before I heard Jesus, was all about this documentary about Peter Norman entitled Salute. And Peter says this, I grew up in the Salvation Army. My parents uh, were servants, in the, like officers in the Salvation Army. And he said, one thing I knew from early childhood is God loves everyone equally. And these power plays that push people out are not from God. So when these guys said, we're standing and doing this, he said, I'm with you. And he, and he got a button and he put it on and wore it in solidarity. Did it cost him? Absolutely. Careers, probably speaking engagements, platform, market share, endorsements, gone. Did he care? No. Because in the movie, this is what he said. All I wanted to do was the right thing. That's our word today. With the pressure to get involved in a million things, with the pressure to speak a certain way, Jesus is speaking to us. Hey, just follow me. Therein is freedom. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that we have this time together. And we pray for our world. The multiplicity of challenging issues makes us anxious and fearful. The pressure to be drawn into a certain stream of activity can be overwhelming and anxiety-inducing. 
would you guide us to the living streams of Holy Spirit water that is this, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Give us ears to hear, hearts to respond, and we'll thank you in Christ's name we pray, amen.